This is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking to leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guest this week is one of our own, Business of Home's editor in chief, Caitlin Peterson. Caitlin began her career in journalism, covering everything from food and culture in Chicago to true crime in Texas. She ended up in New York in the design media world at Hearst, working for Veranda and helping to relaunch Metropolitan Home before decamping to BOH to reshape the editorial vision here. Now Caitlin is launching a podcast of her own, Trade Tales, focused on great stories and business lessons from working designers. She and I spoke about the out-of-control lead times plaguing the industry today, what it's like to cover RH up close, and the challenges of bringing real journalism to the design trade. This podcast was sponsored by Serena and Lily. With a dedicated trade team and design shops from coast to coast, Serena and Lily's exclusive trade program has the personalized service, products, and custom details you need to execute your vision seamlessly. From trade-only discounts to complimentary swatches, COM to custom by the inch, being a Serena and Lily trade member offers endless inspiration, giving you and your clients the unique look you deserve. Join their trade program by visiting serenaandlily.com slash trade. In 2006, a fashion designer from New York City and a furniture designer and builder from Tucson, Arizona, fell in love. The result was this week's sponsor, Baker Heseldens Studio. The husband and wife team's work is boundlessly unique and full of endearing contradictions. They create heirloom-quality pieces that are inspired by everything from the rooftop spires in Istanbul to the pedestal rock formations of the American Southwest. If your interest has been piqued, find out more on Instagram. Their handle is at Baker Heseldens. And in case you're wondering, it's spelled H-E-S-S-E-L-D-E-N-Z. And now, on with the show. Caitlin, it, it's it's so great to have you here. I'm I'm delighted to get to have this conversation with you. It's great to be here. Thank you. I recognize that, and I, I shudder to, to to think, Caitlin, but but apparently, many people might be actually listening to the Boh podcast and not realize that there is a whole website, a, a whole magazine, a, a whole industry, if you will, behind Business of Home, uh, and there has been for for more than ten years, but. I wanted to give you the opportunity as the as the editor in chief to to sort of perhaps explain to our listeners who might not be familiar with Business of Home yet exactly what Business of Home is. So perhaps we can start there. Absolutely. I mean, we are first and foremost a daily news site. We are also a quarterly print magazine. Your amazing podcast, um, daily and weekly newsletters. Um, an industry-leading job board, an events calendar, a series of educational workshops for designers. But kind of at its core, it's a news organization, but also a business tool and a resource for the interior design industry. Well, and in addition to my wonderful podcast, there is soon going to be another wonderful podcast, and and we're going to talk about that in a little while. Knock on wood, right? <laughs> yes, it, it's it's very exciting, and I and I really can't wait to get into that. But I want to give listeners an opportunity to get to know you a little bit better in this conversation. So I'm wondering. Where where is a good place for us to to start with the the early days of of Caitlin Peterson? Gosh, how far back do you go on that? I well, <laughs> well, it you was know, before, no. Um. I I I want to know Caitlin when an interest in design mm. came in came into your life. I definitely did not see interior design as a profession when I was growing up. I think the first time. I met anyone who used the phrase, my decorator, was when I got to college. Um, <laughs> and my sorority had an interior designer who came in and kind of redesigned the space while I lived there. And I went to school with a lot of young women who talked about, you know, oh, my family is designer. And I remember being like, what? That's, <laughs> that's interesting. Okay. Um, but I think for me, it wasn't really until I moved to New York that I got into the design industry in earnest. And, and, what, and what brought you to New York originally? 
I went to journalism school. I worked at a series of regional magazines. So all through college, I was um, interning basically full-time at a small magazine for the affluent North Shore Chicago sh- suburbs. North Shore Chicago suburbs. Oh, well, and, and, we, and we should mention for people, you, you grew up in, in... I grew up in the Chicago suburbs. I went to exactly. Northwestern. Uh, I had a brief fellowship at Texas Monthly where I thought I was going to be a crime reporter. Um Right. <laughs> I, I, I was I was forgetting about the Texas Monthly time and and tell listeners a little bit because you you've you've told me some fun stories a, a, around that around that time. Yeah. So um. Well, I had a fellowship there. You know, Texas Monthly has this amazing award winning history of incredible crime reporting and kind of true crime journalism. I went there and I really quickly learned that you know reporting from federal prisons is really dark and makes you. Yeah. Uh, made me profoundly sad all the time. And so I think it was just, um, you know, kind of in that hunt for the right subject area, it was sort of a stop along the way, but also teaches you to be really comfortable asking really hard questions. So in that one way, I'm, you know, definitely really grateful that I spent some time there. You know, and then I went back home to Chicago and got a job at Chicago Magazine where I wrote more about food. So it definitely, <laughs> it didn't stick right away. And Chicago is a very important food scene. Totally. So, oh, right? it was great. It was right when food yeah. blogs were being invented. Oh. Um, so it was a very exciting time to get to try a lot of the a lot of the great new restaurants and sort of explore explore something outside of the really traditional food critic medium. So. So, and then how did that evolve oh, right. into coming I'm, to New York? I'm supposed to tell you how I moved to New York. Well, um, my editor, the editor in chief at Chicago Magazine, Chicago Magazine at the time was owned by the Tribune Company, which was just starting to show cracks after, you know, oh. the early onset of the recession. And he called me into his office and he was like, You're doing great work. I have to fire somebody. You're the last one in. Oh. You're getting fired. Um, but, to his credit, he also said, you know, here's the deal. If you want to do magazine journalism, there isn't anywhere else in Chicago for you to go. You've kind of maxed out the opportunities for you here. And I think you should move to New York. I'll see if anybody I know from when I worked there two decades ago is still around and would meet with you. Just like see what we can pull together. So I booked like a three-day trip to New York. Um, I did have a cousin living in the city, so I slept on her couch and I ended up meeting with extraordinary journalists at New York Magazine, Brides, and Vogue. And all of them were like, it's so great to meet you. We'd love to help you. We can't really help you until you live here. Um, mm. And so I went home, packed up my stuff, and I moved to New York 15 days later. And within a week, I was hired to be the assistant to Ingrid Sishi and Sandra Brandt who had just left Interview Magazine and had this role as sort of international editors for um, Vanity Fair Italy, Vanity Fair Spain, German Vogue, and Russian Vogue. And so on my very first day of work, like the phone started ringing from Russia and also really famous people were calling. Um, and it was I'm just sure. an incredible crash course in um, this crazy affluent world. You only read about you know, Carl Lagerfeld and Larry Gagosian. And here they were like on the phone. Um, you know, I mean, that alone was extraordinary. I also like, I knew nothing about New York. I think the second day I worked there, I was on the phone with someone and I, I told them that something was happening on Houston street. And I got off the phone. I remember Ingrid <laughs> looked at me and she was like, it's Houston like, street. Houston. You mean never uh, make that mistake yeah. again. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the um, newbie. Totally. I mean, and it was, you know, it was a hard job. It was a long job. I didn't really, I didn't know anybody. So it's not like I was distracted by friends, but it really was kind of, I worked there for six months and it really was sort of all I did. And that was the New York that I knew. So I knew restaurants I couldn't afford to eat at. I knew like places <laughs> I couldn't afford to shop at. But it, but I knew, you know, kind of all of these amazing, I sort of got to see into the world where all of these Amazing people lived and threw private parties and spent thousands of dollars on floral deliveries just because, you know, not even it's your birthday, but just because. <laughs> so you so you say you were there for six months. What mm-hmm. what 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 came next? How did how did things change for you? 
I worked at Macy's Herald Square. This is not interesting, but I worked at Macy's Herald Square for six months, which is a, or six weeks, which is a fascinating insight into how department stores work um, because I ran out of money. And then- You mean po- post-Condé Nast you worked yeah, at Macy's? Yeah, I like legitimately had like $60 and was like, well, I guess I need a job. And so I was a holiday manager uh, for all four women's floors at Macy's Herald Square. My first day of work was Black Friday, um, where teen girls come and just like look at things and then throw them on the floor for 12 hours. And I basically was sort of a a guide to um, like support sales assistants to kind of help navigate coverage on the floor. And then also to like tell people to leave if they had been found shoplifting. (laughs) (laughs) Which was running rampant in that store, right? Because Mm -hmm. it was so huge and there were so few staffers on the floor. There was a crazy thing when I was there, and I don't think you can do this anymore, but um, people would return things to the wrong floor. I'm sorry, this is such a tangent. People would return things to the wrong floor. This is a rabbit hole I welcome. Let's get into this. Shoplifting at Macy's. Yes, we're taking a quick break from the show to tell you about a crime problem that used to happen. No, it's true. People would return things to the wrong floor. And because the like behind the scenes part of that store is so large, it would take three or four days for those products to make it back to where they were supposed to be. And so at some point over the course of a week, people had returned like 75 um, fake North Face jackets in a color that did not exist by the real North Face. Um, But it took like a week for all of them to arrive back in the women's outerwear section where they realized that they had literally been fleeced out of like tens of thousands of dollars. (laughs) So anyway, um, but they had a crazy security system. So you were back covering true crime. Kind of. There we go. Yes. Um, It It all came full circle for you. How on earth did Macy's lead to you going going to work for Hearst. This oh. I, I have to hear. I mean, I was desperately looking for a job so I didn't have to work at Macy's anymore is the real answer. Okay. <laughs> um, but no, I, um, I got kind of out of the blue and asked to interview with uh, Derek Hapanegro, who was then the oh. editor-in-chief of Veranda. Certainly. She was looking for a new assistant. That was the real sort of entree into the shelter category for me. That, how fantastic. So, I mean, you, you must have had a pretty good interview because Dara's, Dara's <laughs> you know, she's, she's particular about the people that she, that she brings on. And, and so, so originally you were, you were being offered a job at, at, at Veranda. Where, mm-hmm. So, I, at, I mean, I stayed at Veranda um, for a really long time. I worked for Dara when Veranda was a team, you know, a really tiny team of like 11 or 12 people in New York. Um, and then... Basically, a year to the day later, we all we merged. Veranda merged with House Beautiful and El Decor to form the Hearst Design Group, and so I was there for that transition. And where'd you go next? <laughs> I know the answer, but I joined Business of Home. Um, I think sometimes you max out on I think what you can learn where you're at. Um, and I had Is that been, what you had decided? You had it was. Like, okay. I mean, and I think it was really scary. I had been at the Hearst Design Group for almost seven years. It felt really safe. But as I was sort of weighing, staying and going, one of one of my mentors said to me, you know, he said, you know, sometimes you have to leave a place to get the respect that you deserve. And I got so many amazing opportunities to do things at Hearst. But I think at some point I had sort of hit that place where no matter how cool of a thing I was allowed to do. I was also always going to be the person who made photocopies and filed expense reports for a lot of the people I worked with. And I think it didn't matter how good you were. Like you just weren't going to shake that. Um, And you sort of had to go out and try something new. I don't know. And I had been, I had been talking with Julia, the founder of editor at large and business of home, you know, and then the timing wasn't right. And then I was sort of waffling about what I wanted to do. And all of a sudden she reappeared in my inbox and said, actually, what I'm looking for has changed. I'm looking for someone <laughs> to take over at this year-old magazine we launched called BOH. Do you want to talk about it? It was just really perfect timing. And so I joined the BOH team in 2017, in the fall. And I think on like the, my third day of work, I flew to High Point for my first High Point as a BOH editor. Well, and, and had you spent a lot of time in High Point before that, had you gone to High Point a bunch I of had, times in I had your been, previous capacity? I had been to a few markets, you know, okay. as 
because as sort of a representative of Met Home with the Hearst Design Group editors. And thank goodness, because, you know, that was certainly a crowd to travel with who knew their way around, knew everybody, and was really able to show me the ropes. So I was able to jump in with BOH and kind of know where things were, know how to get around. I knew a lot of the faces. So it wasn't unfamiliar, but it was definitely scary to walk in and be like, I'm supposed to have all the answers for you about what this brand is going to be. And like, I'm not sure yet, but like, let's explore together. <laughs> so, Well, and in, in, in a way, it was such an interesting time because the brand was exploring mm-hmm. what it was going to be. And in the time since you've joined and you've played a major role in sort of forming what the brand would become as mm-hmm. your role evolved from once being the editor-in-chief of the magazine oh and then suddenly becoming the editor-in-chief over everything. And, and we should explain for listeners what, what over everything means and sort of what your, what your role is and, and all that, all that BOH What does, does. everything mean? <laughs> what, uh, what does it all mean, Caitlin? <laughs> For the but no, for the past two and a half years, I've been running our daily site. Um, it was kind of all the things we talked about up top: the daily and yeah. weekly newsletters. In addition to the magazine, we launched a membership community called BOH Insiders, and so I've also done some exclusive virtual events and programming for that group. We launched a future the Future of Home conference, which you have hosted so incredibly. I um, hear that was amazing. <laughs> you were great. <laughs> um, you know, and I got to help shape some of the editorial vision of the programming for that. I just rewrote some emails that people get when they purchase a job post or a magazine subscription last night, which sounds incredibly silly, but I think words matter. And so, you know, a big piece of what I've tried to do is sort of touch all of the places where people are going to read Business of Home, even if that is in kind of a transactional email, just to make sure that at every touch point, we are welcoming designers and industry professionals into a community that adds value to their business. I think a big piece of that too, I mean, BOH used to be editor at large. A few years ago, we rebranded the whole company as Business of Home. And I think that name change was sort of also the moment that I started working on the website. For me, that really represents kind of an intention setting or sort of this idea that we wanted to be sort of an omnipresent resource for the design industry um, and for designers who are building their businesses. Known for their unique coastal-inspired mix, Serena and Lily makes good design their business, working with trade professionals like you to transform interiors. Join their trade program to enjoy trade-only events and discounts, COM and complimentary swatches, and services tailored to your specific needs like extra customization options and extended returns. You can even use their design shops as an extension of your workspace. Become a trade member at serenaandlily.com slash trade. And now, back to the show. I jotted down earlier when you were talking mm-hmm. about journalism because I think there was this psychological shift internally at Business of Home mm-hmm. To, to really sort of shift the model, uh, as you were just saying, what Editor-at-Large was. Mm-hmm. And Editor-at-Large editor had a very different it was amazing. premise, right? Mm-hmm. But it was a very different t- type of site. Mm-hmm. And Business of Home was going to have a very different intention mm-hmm. and journalism was going to play a, a huge role in that. So, so speak yeah. to me a little bit about that. You know, I had a, I had basically a year where I got to work on the magazine first. Um, I don't know that I should actually say this, but I don't know that I read the site. I don't know that I read the editor-at-large site every day when I was working on the magazine. Okay, okay. But- I'll, I'll bounce back from that. I'll bounce back from that. <laughs> I yeah. did, but, you know, I think when that shift changed and I started focusing on the site every day, one of the things that was really important to me early on was, you know, I wake up and you read the New York Times. I thought a lot about what it would take to make business of home that essential destination for industry insight. We scaled back the quantity of um, reporting we were doing initially. It had to be less but better originally reported information and analysis that you couldn't get anywhere else. We had a lot of conversations in the newsroom. You know, I spent a lot of time thinking about how can, how can we add value? You know, there's a lot of people who can tell you what's new you know, in the industry, but really how can we, how can business of home be a destination that tells you what matters? What I noticed 
happened mm-hmm. along the way with that with that shift was that we met some resistance at first. <laughs> I with, forgot about that. Right? With with some of our community, mm-hmm. which felt that we weren't covering perhaps some of the things that we used to cover and, mm-hmm. and we were covering other things and and often we were covering them in a in a deeper way or asking or- tough questions. Um, <laughs> well, no, it's I mean, true. I mean, back to the journalism piece. Actually, I think that's true. I think a lot of people in this industry had never been asked a hard question in their life by a journalist before. Um, and I think that that's so funny. I totally forgot about that. But it's so true. That first year, year and a half was a real demoralizing uphill slog. Well, I mean, it, there were there were real challenges. There were. I think. I mean, so much design industry coverage is glowing and positive and rah, rah, hooray, beautiful stuff, which is great and enjoyable. Um, but I think, you know, in a lot of the shelter world media, the the filter is not this is good and this is bad. It's this is all amazing because the stuff that you don't have good things to say about, you just don't talk about. Um, and I think for the first time, we were asking people tough questions about how they run their business, tough questions about challenges they were facing, whether that was in their distribution or, you know, people who kind of had public failures, but no one had ever talked about it. And I think that was a really unpleasant surprise for a lot of brands who weren't used to that kind of treatment. I think it also makes people better. I think if there is a real, a real sense of Transparency is such an overused word, but I think if there is that sense of honesty and storytelling around um, pretty universal business challenges, then you know we all grow as an industry as a result. Um, and I think it just took it took a long time to kind of wear people down and get them excited about what we were doing. Well, it, it, exactly, and and it did take them a long time, mm-hmm. and and in, and in for a while, people went away or they didn't want to share mm-hmm. things with us. And, and I should say it wasn't that was definitely like the folks we were writing about. I would say especially right. in brands in manufacturing industry who maybe were used to sending a press release and saying, "Hey, I have this new thing." You know, and you could really guarantee that that was going to be like a glowing, like X brand has Y new thing, you know, two days later on the site, you know, and maybe the new version of BOH does write about that thing. Um, but we're going to ask you why you brought that product to market. Why does it matter now? Why is it essential now? Frankly, like, why should we care beyond just that this exists? <laughs> um, that felt like a new question, I think, to a lot of brands. Why Why are you, what was the strategy in bringing this product to market? Or what was the strategy behind this messaging shift that you're making? I think made a lot of people uncomfortable at the beginning. It, it did. And, and interestingly, it's what I think they love most about now. <laughs> what Business of Home is today. Yes, yes. absolutely. It's so funny. I We're sitting here and I was like, oh my gosh, I remember you coming into the office. And I remember like griping about like busting out like that, like Texas Monthly journalism skill set and, and freaking out brands and yes. then complaining about it in the office and being like, oh, these people can't even answer one simple <laughs> question. I have 100% like 100% like selective memory blocked that out. And now that everybody's excited, I was excited about them too. I 100% <laughs> forgot about that. Well, I mean, it was it was so interesting because, as you say, they were feeling challenged for, mm-hmm. for the for the first time. Well, I think right after that was sort of like 2019. I mean, I started editing the site in earnest in late 2018, I believe. And I mean, 2019, like starting in like January, February, it was sort of like the year of industry bankruptcies, especially kind of in the you know, Robert right. Allen tumbled to the ground. Um, Dustin Fournier, J. Robert Scott also filed. And I think this trio of catastrophic f- business failures, all for different reasons. But I don't know that the industry had ever had a team of journalists really digging into the bankruptcy filings before and telling everybody what they found in them. You know, I also don't think people were used to being told like, no, actually, we're just going to report on the actual news that's happening. Like that was that was the real, I think, shift was, I feel like I had a lot of tough conversations where I was like, that's okay. If you don't want to comment, that's okay. If you don't want to participate, but you don't get to decide that the internal workings of your company aren't worth writing about. If we have sources who are telling us that things are going terribly. 
Right. And and that was another thing that we were doing that we hadn't done in the past. Correct. We were Correct. talking to sources and and we were writing things that weren't just be, being handed to, mm-hmm. to us in that same way. And that was and that was unsettling and unnerving <laughs> and and there were a lot of people that were All of your employees are fair game <laughs> if I can find them on LinkedIn. No. <laughs> It was that effort of find this find this person who seems to work at the production department over there and find out what's really going on. I mean, and to be fair, there is so much, you know, there that's not like this like crazy, you know, like hunt to rustle up a disgruntled former employee. There is so much um care taken to validate the things that they say. You know, I mean, I think our tips inbox is full of really like juicy unconfirmable gossip. Um, And none of that makes it kind of onto the site. But, you know, I think there is sort of um, if a story, you know, can be corroborated, can be reported, can be really validated, you know, I think there is so much value in kind of bringing that into the news. Well, so that, that sort of segues perfectly into, so help, help me understand, help listeners understand sort of a, sort of a day in the life for, for you. I mean, I think the fun and terrible part of working in news is that no day is the same and you can have the best laid plans in the world. And if some media company in your orbit gets acquired that afternoon, like you drop everything (laughs) and so does your whole team and you report it. Um, So there is a little bit of like, oh, this just happened. Like throw everything else on your calendar out, you know, and our whole team is kind of calling everybody we know or kind of trying to work together to get that scoop and to be first and to have that, you know, kind of breaking news up on the internet and posted on Instagram and sort of broadcasting that out. So I think in that way, it is um, ever changing and very volatile. <laughs> um, but in theory, I mean, in theory, the the big picture scope for the site is really, you know, I think having a having a finger on the pulse of what's happening, what challenges designers and also design industry businesses are facing. And then telling those stories in a way that um, kind of captures the attention and the interest of readers no matter where they are in the industry. So I think a lot about, you know, the mix of things that we're publishing every day. You know, if you run a furniture company, maybe you don't care about certain corners of what BOH covers. But if you're a designer, you care about sort of a different corner of the industry. And so where does that Venn diagram overlap? What are we putting out into the world that appeals to a furniture retailer, you know, in the middle of the country versus, you know, a interior designer in Seattle, Washington versus a showroom owner in Florida, you know, um, making sure we strike that balance and that we're sort of answering and collecting stories that reflect the experiences, the fears, the concerns, um, and the goals of all of those people um, is a really big piece of what I'm thinking about. Um, and kind of pulling the levers of, you know, how do you how do you alter that mix? How do you how do you surprise people? How do you tell them stories they haven't heard before? I mean, everybody knows that COVID has changed the way people think about home. Like that doesn't need to be said again. But what does it mean? What does it mean in different parts of the country, in different parts of the industry, you know, as container ships fall off of or, you know, as containers fall off of freighters, you know, what does that mean for the industry? You know, I think there's just like an extra wrinkle, but, but that sense of, you know, what can we add that's new that, that helps, um, no matter where you are in the industry that brings value to your business, that changes the way you do your business, that changes the way you think about your competitors or your clients. I, I want, I want all of those things. So I'm thinking a lot about that. So you you mentioned the, 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 the sad story of the containers <laughs> literally being lost at sea and hundreds of thousands of dollars of furniture because gone. because i mean we didn't need that furniture like no one was waiting on that right. for 6 months right right well and and that seems to be one of the biggest stories right now yeah. right is yeah. all of the supply chain challenges all of the inventory mm-hmm. challenges all of the poor upholstery companies that have had to extend their lead times for mm-hmm. weeks and weeks it's funny it's the thing i think right now that people message me on instagram the most about is like hey can you write a story about lead times you could ask us to write a story about almost anything else and we could give you um actionable information with lead times the answer is really like I'm sorry, they're long. I can tell you why. Um, but it's funny, I think a lot of people have written to us looking for us to like solve this lead time problem for them. <laughs> um, 
And I, I, I hate that the best answer I can give is, you know, let's talk about different strategies to set reasonable expectations with your clients, because I can't speed this up for you. So maybe maybe we need to pivot and talk about, you know, different ways of approaching talking about lead times with clients. And that is value we can add. But it's funny, I think it's it's definitely one of the biggest issues in the industry right now. And I'm sort of like, well, it exists. Well, it, Here's it, why. It, exactly. <laughs> Here's why. And, and to the point that you were just making, and, and, it, and it sounds like so many of the people that you speak to mm-hmm. suggest this is going to be here for quite some time. This isn't mm-hmm. getting resolved. This is 2021 to me. Right. The rest of this year, you're looking at these long lead times. It's mm-hmm. baked in the cake, right? I mean, because it's... It is. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's... Uh, we've written about it some, but I think there's, you know, that combination of obviously like factories did shut down. So like there was a backlog of, you know, product that needed to be manufactured, you know, orders were already in. As factories, you know, overseas and in the U.S. have come back online, you know, they are social distancing. They may not be able to have all of their team, you know, manufacturing in the ways that they used to, um, to try and play catch up. They also, frankly, may have significant portions of their team quarantining or sick with COVID sometimes, to be completely honest, you know, and if three essential members of your team when you're making upholstery are out for 10 days, that's 10 days more that that half completed sofa, you know, sits on the floor. Um, And that's 10 days longer that, you know, you as a designer wait for it. So much of what you spend your time doing is having conversations Mm -hmm. with designers and and really finding out what's going on for designers. What are the challenges they're facing? Tell me a little Mm -hmm. bit about how the 50 States project Mm -hmm. came to came to be. And and then mm-hmm. we can sort of talk about one of the things that's that's come out of it as as a result. But so mm-hmm. tell us how that sort of first got started. Uh, kind of pre-COVID, um, the the series started in January of last year, um, and it was one hundred percent a very long car ride I took in December. Um, I was in the back seat of an SUV with my laptop open. I was just like, oh, look, I'm going to brainstorm for the year. Uh, I was in Iowa. Um, which with a little bit of snow and frost on the landscape is not an especially inspiring landscape. It's also very monotonous, but there was something very um, productive about sort of staring out the window and sort of thinking about the design industry. And, you know, I ended up playing this game with myself where I was like, well, how many designers do I know in Iowa? Um, And then I wrote them all down. (laughs) I was like, how many designers do I know in Idaho? And I wrote them all down. And I was really captivated by this idea that like, I didn't know what the challenges were, you know, what are the unique challenges of working in design in different parts of the country? Um, And I was just really fascinated by that. And so I thought, you know, oh, this would be a really fun experiment to just check in with one designer from every state, you know, I had to get up and running. So I think we took the first week off. But then, you know, okay, there's like 51 weeks left in the year. I've got 50 states in DC, like, let's do this. And so every single week, I looked for um, a new designer to sort of represent that state, um, hopped on the phone with them and asked them really nosy questions about how they run their businesses, and turned it into a Q&A for the site. Um, and it ended up being, it was funny, I got you know, I sort of got into a rhythm and figured out what the series was going to be in January and February. And then COVID hit, you know, and really started to impact the design industry in March and April. And so all of a sudden, I was doing this series, but had this really like intimate lifeline kind of into the businesses of designers, you know, who were very scared, who had seen work dry up. You know, some of them were saying, you know, I scraped through the last recession and I don't know that I want to invest that much to do it again. And who really felt like they were staring down, you know, two or three years of no work. And then all of a sudden it was like a flip switched. And all of a sudden everybody was like, I've been getting more calls in a week than I used to get in a month. Like I don't, I furloughed my whole team, but now I just took on 12 projects. I think I'm going to try and execute them by myself. (laughs) Like there was this sort of immediate moment of, who knows how long this will last, but lots of people want to spend money with me. So like, let's just say yes to everything. And I feel like in the last few months, then, I mean, obviously, that's not sustainable and very terrible for quality of life and hard to execute well. And I feel like lately, a lot of people I've talked to as part of the series have now been sort of reckoning with how to grow. 
Junho loved the Baker Heseltine studio aesthetic so much that he picked it to accompany his own work at his New York and Chicago trade showrooms. In 2021, Baker Heseltine Studio will be debuting a slew of new pieces, including a cast bronze indoor-outdoor collection designed in collaboration with Scott Pask, the three-time Tony Award-winning set designer of the Book of Mormon. The duo is constantly working on new and exciting projects, so stay informed by checking their website or by following Baker Heseltine on Instagram. That's H E S S E L D E N Z. And now, on to the show. So often we we get into this discussion around what designers' fee structure should be and contracts mm-hmm. and right. I mean, it, it, inevitably mm-hmm. the conversation seems to go there. But, oh, it always goes but, there. But Absolutely. I mean, in, in your discussions, are there are there sort of other mm-hmm. areas that that also come up? That I mean, you, you've talked about this sort of quality of life issue, and and how do they mm-hmm. reasonably grow a business, but also sort of manage some kind of mm-hmm. life? It's it, it's harder to do now. But I mean, what are some of the other issues that 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 do come up? Mm-hmm. I think something that's really interesting to me is how you hire, who you hire. You know what you're looking for in the people you hire. Um, you know some people hire, you know, a business manager or a project manager first, and you know offload all of the procurement because they don't want to do it. You know some people hire a designer to take the design work off of their plate, and then discover that that leaves them doing a lot less design, which is the <laughs> thing they ostensibly got into the business to do in the first place. And I think. You know, figuring some people are really okay with that. Um, I talked to you know Jody Cook in Colorado uh, a few weeks ago, and you know she only has two senior designers working for her, and they run their own independent projects. She runs hers, and that's you know I mean she's I think about to hire you know someone to do some of the procurement and the business side stuff, but she's really comfortable with the idea that there was enough work coming in that she was going to. Give away entire projects and let other designers own some of the design work. There are, I think, just as many people who say, you know, no, I want to protect the design work. My name is on the door, and I'm going to hire people to do everything else.、Um, I talked to someone the other day where I was like, well, how many projects are you working on?、And、she was like, I have no <laughs> idea. My team takes care of that for me. I'm in this. Protected little space where I'm creating, you know. But I don't know if your sofa's been ordered. I don't know if that case good arrived without damages. But I trust that someone on my team does, and I'll find out if there's a problem.、Um, and I think, I mean, those are two really kind of <laughs> polar opposite examples of how you can grow your business. But presenting examples like that and really understanding why those different. Approaches work for different designers has been so interesting to me, especially knowing how many more people are out there not sure of who to hire next to solve how overwhelmed they feel. For the people who read this series, you know, I hope that they eventually land on someone who sounds like them or who strikes a chord within them, and they're like, "Oh, this person's you know secret to fee structures or to hiring or to client onboarding." Like this solves all of my problems and resonates with you know how I want to run my business. I think the challenge of the design industry is that there are so many ways to like there are so many right ways to do anything that you know we're never going to have an article that's like here's how you should charge for your design work. That's just not. I tried to write that. Well, I was going to say.、Field. I mean,、so. you thought you were going to crack that code at one point. You said,、oh, yes, out I did. To, to- We put it on the cover of Boh a year ago. <laughs> it said, "Is it time to change the way you charge?" And the truth was, legitimately, I talked to like two dozen designers about how they charged, and you know, I set up all these calls, and I was like, you know, I'm going to have these conversations. I'm going to figure out what works and what doesn't, and I'm just going to know, and I'm going to write this. This is so arrogant <laughs> in retrospect,、uh, but I was like, I'm going to write this great piece that tells everyone exactly how they should charge. And I think the piece I ultimately wrote was like, "There's about a million ways to do this. It depends. All of them are perfectly valid." And like, the biggest thing for me was that you need to know what you're charging for, you know. And if you can talk about it with your client, if it's not this like dark hole of mystery, you know, it's less important to have the answer and more important to be open with clients about how your business works, about how you charge, about how you make money. And about what that means for them,、um, and I think that 
that was a really kind of, I mean, that was a really important, I think, realization for me. Because in reporting that, one of the things that I came away with was that clients aren't, I don't think, as price sensitive as designers think they are. Tell me what you mean by that. I mean, I think people certainly call designers all the time with very unrealistic budgets. You know, I want to gut renovate my entire 8,000 square foot house. I have $100,000. Like, let's go. Um, And designers are kind of like, well... We might not be a great fit. Like that doesn't sound like that doesn't sound like it lines up with what I do. I think that's always going to happen. But I do think there are just as many people out there who don't know what design costs, who don't know why it costs as much as it does. And if you can communicate how you charge the value your firm delivers, I think it can be a pretty smooth ride. I think they can really be convinced, you know, and to see the value in what you bring. Um, you know, there's so much that doesn't have price tags in our industry for better or worse. But I do think that that leaves, I think that leads to a lot of people just not knowing. It's, it's, it's interesting because so often we have a guest on the show who just says flat out trade pricing is going away. What time is it now? An, an hour from now, trade pricing will be gone. Right. And, and, <laughs> and then you have another person and they're like, listen, I've been in this industry a long time. People have been saying trade pricing is going away. They said that 45 years ago. They're saying it now. <laughs> it's not going away. Design centers yeah. aren't going away. Nothing's going away. Nothing's going to change. And, and so I, <laughs> it's when you, when you talk to a large group of designers, it is really hard to imagine that there is going to be this one model mm-hmm. fits all that's ever going to work. And, and, and as you discovered, particularly no. across the entire country and how diverse the the whole, I mean, it's... Before I wrote that piece, I mean, I was always that, that idea of like, well, why do people charge the way they do? How does it work? It was totally my favorite question to ask designers. But I feel like my favorite question now is like, how do you get clients comfortable with writing you a big check? Like, forget right. how you charge. People are going to figure out how to bill for their design talent. And I, I don't think there's a right answer. Um, you know, maybe you pass your discount along to your client. Maybe you charge a markup. I think you should probably be honest with your clients about what your markup is. That's up to you. But if we can find a way to help everybody raise their rates and confidently get clients to write lots of five <laughs> and six figure checks, that feels like a really big win. And it doesn't matter how exactly. you get there. That's what winning should look like. And don't even, don't even worry about all Seriously. those other issues. Sean Lowe writes a column for us. He's an amazing Indeed. business coach. And um, I edit his column every other week. But he just he wrote one recently about this fact that like designers always say like, oh, trust me to their clients. Like they can magically like turn off a client's fear. His analogy was that you don't bring someone closer to a Monet painting to help them appreciate how great the painting is. You take several steps back and you kind of show them the whole thing so that they can take it in better. And I really loved that way of thinking about it. And he was talking more about like fear and decision making. But I also think it just sort of applies to the client mentality in general. Like I don't think clients are malicious. I think they want their designer to make a living, but I also think they just don't get how it works. And if they don't get it and they see a big number, it's scary. And and that is still one of the biggest Um, challenges is that they don't get how it mm -hmm. works. But I think if you have more information, more context, I mean, that's what takes the fear out of it is being able to talk about money, talk about how your business turns a profit, but also you know, the value you're delivering. So the other subject that almost inevitably comes up on just about every episode of the Business of Home podcast these days is, you guessed it, RH, right? And so some (laughs) people think Gary Friedman is the greatest marketer to ever live, and he's a genius, and these are castles. They're not stores. They are chateaus (laughs) of of great design and other people think it is the end of the world as we know it you have actually spent time with gary friedman you have been with the man himself and i know you have thoughts opinions some of which you may want to share some you may not i don't know but but i'm wondering really what you what you do sort of make of this whole phenomena and 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 sort of how Mm -hmm. the industry sort of obsesses over it the the good the bad and, and what you think i think gary friedman did something incredibly smart because he looked at an interior design industry where there were no premium brands making noise in the consumer marketplace. And he said, look over here, I have this gallery. It's not a store, it's a gallery. And we have the best design. We have the best design in our gallery. Um, And there are a lot of people (laughs) who will tell you that's not true. 
But there are a lot more people who only know or only equate good design with RH because that's the only brand they've seen positioning themselves in the premium luxury design marketplace. Um, you know, should trade brands have been in that space talking about how they value quality, how they value style, what they bring to a homeowner? I don't know. Um, but I do think that, you know, if you are a consumer, showroom brands that are in showrooms are not household names for most people. They you know everybody's gotten the RH phone book in the mail and been impressed, if nothing else, by its immense volume. You know, I think there's there's a there's a grandiosity and this kind of sense of shine and luxury in the marketing, in the in the stores themselves that speaks really loudly. Um and is really, really incredible. I mean, the gallery in Napa Valley was about a month old when I went out there to report the the story I worked on about Gary. And I will never forget. I mean, this beautiful setting in wine country, um, it's a restaurant and a wine bar. And then there were like two small furniture spaces, separate buildings in the back. We honestly spent an entire day there and we were about to leave. And I was like, oh, wait, I should go look (laughs) at the furniture. Hang on. Like it was just this really, I mean, we were also doing a photo shoot to be fair and had a really long like lunch interview, but there, it was this really immersive experience and you kind of forgot that you were, that you were being sold something. And I think that's really powerful. Um, But also the number of people who saw Gary and came up to us and were like, oh, my God, you are Mr. Restoration Hardware, and I love <laughs> everything you do. You know, they had this this real reverence. You know, they would list off all the stores they'd been to. And, I mean, Gary was so incredibly gracious. He was like, thank you so much. Thank you for coming. You know, we built this for you. It was actually really – it was really – interesting to see how excited people were about him about what he'd built and about the brand um and it was a really different perspective to have you know versus well, and, just like and walking what into a store ultimately a what was your sense of of him and i ask him i ask in part because i was having a conversation the other day with a key supplier to mm-hmm. to rh who was talking about this mm-hmm. notion of it is it is such a one man driven operation yes my understanding is that kind of everything does go through Gary. Um, and, you know, for all that we write in every single business advice article for designers, like, don't have everything go through you. Like, you have to <laughs> let things go. You have to give some things away. You know, I, you know, I think, you know, the, the real energy of the company does flow from him. And certainly he's been really successful at um, kind of manifesting his vision of you know, a design industry business. Um, I believe. Well, I mean, I remember I when you came I, back. You know, I, I mean, you were you were pretty excited. I was so <laughs> frustrated. Well, I was so frustrated because it was like, I'm not going to drink the Kool Aid. Like, I'm going to go, and you know, and I think you want. I think there is sort of a natural tendency to be skeptical of right. what l- looks, right. what has such a big footprint in you know, for a company making big moves and big statements and sort of everything it does is just like big and over the top in sort of a gobsmacking way. Um, I came away with a real sense that like, I mean, all of this was before COVID. And so I think they have certainly, you know, looked to the the web, the internet a little bit more now. But I mean, at the time, he was very much like, oh, like, the internet is an afterthought, like the store experience is everything for us. But he also talked a lot about this idea that, like, we don't promote ourselves. We don't have social media. We're not in the business of, I guess, self-promotion, frankly, because he basically said it's so much more powerful when other people talk about you. That, to me, was sort of the key insight to that business is that so much of that bigness or that, you know, kind of spectacular, <laughs> the spectacle, so much of the spectacle of it is is because the goal is to say like yes. look what's here now go tell everyone and that i think is a really powerful engine frankly um i think that was the thing i came back with kind of like oh that's no one else is doing that that's really smart and it, it, it's, it's interesting and i forget who we were interviewing <laughs> no. who talked about so often our industry doesn't seem 
confident. And he seems so mm-hmm. confident about,、oh. right? about confidence personified. About everything. We're going to take over Europe.、Yeah. We're going to be a is it $10 billion、yeah. business. We're going to be all of these things. And there is a, you know, in the same way that people really chafed against serious coverage when, you know, we、yeah. really started kind of rattling the cage at BOH, I think there is, I think people in this industry look at big, bold statements like that and think, You know, kind of like, ooh, I don't know about that. You know, there's a, there's a skepticism there.、Um, but I, yeah, I also think that confidence is really powerful. That's such yeah, a good it's, point. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. And it's, and it's always a, a subject that just sort of, th- there's no one who's middle of the road when it comes to talking about RH, right? So they either get really excited、um, <laughs> or they're, oh my God, it's the worst and we're just going to bring it down. Or as you were saying, like some people just, oh, I, I don't want to fall for it. I don't want to drink that Kool Aid, as you were saying.、Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't want to believe that that's really going to work. And yet here it is, a $9 billion market company. I mean, it's the biggest. I mean, I know you've talked about it before. It's the biggest design industry. Yeah, or it's the biggest design company in the industry. You know, I think, I don't know. I, I do think that if, you're, if your party line is like, we're going、right. to take down restoration hardware or we're going to, you know, kick them off of their perch in the marketplace, like your moment has sort of passed. And I think. I think it's maybe time to pivot. <laughs> exactly.、Um, pick, a, pick another battle to, to <laughs> fight, right? A little bit. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. Like,、yes. I mean, I'm a、yes. little bit tired of that. But I think, you know, you can, if you don't want to shop there, you can, this goes back to like, how do, you, how do you communicate your value? Like, how do you talk to your clients about where you want to shop and the kind of value you bring them and the kind of product you want to bring them? There's certainly a way, if that's not the avenue you want to take. You know, to have that conversation a- with your clients. Lot, lots of opportunities there. Lots of opportunities. <laughs> Let's shift gears、um, and talk about this、mm-hmm. new project that you're working on and, and that we are about to launch. There's, <laughs> there's going to be another podcast here at Business of Home, and it's called Trade Tales. So let's. Let's have you tell、yes, us about Trade Tales, what it is, how it came into being, and,、mm-hmm. uh, and what, it, what we have to look forward to. We have a, a weekly column right now、um, on the site called Trade Tales.、Um, we have for、uh, quite a few years. And basically, we ask designers a different question every week. And, you know, five or seven designers kind of weigh in and give their take, whether it's, you know, do you charge for your first in person consultation or. You know, a recent one was actually like, how do you talk to clients about really long lead times?、Um, you know, to things like, what's the, import- what's the most important clause in your contract? Just sort of a business topic that they can、um, sound off on in like a quick one paragraph soundbite. You know, as I was、um, doing these 50 states interviews every week for the past year, I was talking to so many people about growth. I was talking to so many people who felt like, They were sort of on this out of control hamster wheel. And I think we get so many messages from designers, especially, that say, you know, I want you to tell me how to charge. I want you to tell me, you know, how I should meet with a client. I want you to tell me how I should make the sale or make them, you know, buy into my presentation. And, you know, I mentioned this before there's, there's, there's not one right way to do it. And so, you know, you want to write,、uh, you know, five steps to successful project management, but it's just not that easy.、Um, and I started to realize that, you know, this medium, that, you know, podcasting that you've mastered so well, this, this, the power of storytelling, the power of listening to people tell their own story,、um, I realized could be a really great way to answer a lot of those <laughs> questions. Maybe not directly, but、um, I think if you can find, Someone who has confronted a problem you're facing, listen to them, you know, tell their story and、um, kind of understand how they made it out the other side、um, and what they learned from it. You know, I, I hope that, you know, so this show is basically, it's going to be、um, every other week a conversation with a designer who is facing a problem in their business.、Um, and so we're going to kind of unpack that problem, what happened, how they kind of Got out of it basically, you know, how they solved it and really what they what they learned from it. So we've got basically all happy endings, I think, so far. You know, nobody's like, and then I went out of business, you know, but 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 I think 
the idea for me is that, you know, eventually I hope that that becomes sort of a wealth of knowledge and that, you know, as designers are sort of facing their own business challenges, they find someone who sounds like them. They find someone who's, you know, facing similar struggles and they feel less alone. Um, they know that they're not the only person having that problem. Um, and they also maybe get a little bit of a toolkit to, you know, start problem solving their way out of whatever corner well, they've it, been it, backed into. It's, it's interesting because um, we were we were talking earlier about business of home in general, making this shift and sort of forcing people to talk about business in a, in a different way. And and the same was true sort of with, with designers, right? To sort of get designers really talking about their business and, and sort of getting into it. I mean, I, I know that that... Yeah. I feel like when I first started talking to designers about how they run their businesses, so many people said, you know, oh, I asked other designers in my community for help and no one wanted to share information. And I don't think we can take credit for that completely, but I certainly think Business of Home has played a role in that, in sort of busting open that idea that, you know, if we share best practices, we're some you're somehow jeopardizing your own success. I, I think that more and more designers are comfortable saying, this is how I charge. Here, like new designer in town, take a look at my contract and like figure out what of it is useful to you. I think deciding really that, you know, design is a personal enough business that one person's success does not mean your business is suffering. I think that's a choice. And I think more people are making it. And I think that's really exciting. But I think this show is going to be part of that is saying, you know, here are frank conversations about how a business works. I think also, you know, here are people talking about moments of, in some cases, like real failure. Um, but also, you know, that that wasn't the end and, of their and business, you know. how has it been going for you? I know you've only recorded a few episodes, but how are you finding the podcast <laughs> format? And <laughs> It's hard. You know, you, you get a lot of credit. Um, you know, you, it, it's, it's a lot different than just hopping on the phone, I will say. Um, it's been really fun. Um, and I think... I'm, I'm really excited to kind of put these conversations out into the world and let's sort of normalize the fact that like any creative entrepreneur struggles before they're, in, you know, that there is no overnight success. You know, overnight success is what, like 10 years of hard work or something, I think is the saying. Um, and let's talk about the really <laughs> dirty, hard, well, it, it, it's interesting because one of the. Um, I think one of the nice things that people say about the show that we do right now, the, the BOH podcast, is so many people write mm-hmm. to us and say, I've, I've learned so much about the, about the industry and an industry that I've been in and had no mm-hmm. idea about some of these companies yeah. or, or, or some of these brands that I, that I work with every day and, and had no idea. And we, and we love that. We love that part of it. And we love sort of g- giving people that. And I find podcasts mm-hmm. are such a wonderful way to to learn. You can sort of put them on. You can be sort of doing something else, but, mm-hmm. but you're listening to this really meaningful conversation and you and you take away sort of real lessons. And I think that your 50 States project has been such a meaty set of real interviews with designers who tell all sorts of different stories about mm-hmm. about their businesses about how they got started or about <laughs> how how things turned and and mm-hmm. and these stories are 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 really fascinating mm-hmm. and meaningful and I'm excited for you to have mm-hmm. a different media a different forum to sort of have this conversation and uh, and mm-hmm. to really get into some of the issues that that designers are are struggling with and you've learned so much over all of this time that you've been into this that you that you really are mm-hmm. an authority now on so many of the things that they want to talk about and want to get into so when i have to tell you uh a- a CEO of a fabric company once told me that, you know, he had listened to an interview you had done with a guest and then maybe like two weeks later met that person out at like a cocktail party pre-COVID and like walked up to them and was like, hey, how are you doing? Like, it's so great to see you. And then realized he didn't know the guy. He had only listened to the interview with you. Anyway, I want that. <laughs> that. That I mean, not really. Uh, social embarrassment is unfun, but um, but I want, 
I want people to feel that way about this show that I'm working on in the same way that they feel it with you. Well, and I, and I want that for you too. And, and, and as you know, (laughs) I am so excited about you doing this show because I can't wait for people to get to hear you (laughs) and, and to get to know you uh, as well as I do, because I, I have, Oh, I have well, enormous you. respect and and regard and, uh, and and fondness for you as well. So I'm excited for people to get to hear you, Caitlin. Thank you so much for for making the time to talk with oh, us. Thank you so much, Dennis. This has been so fun. It's uh, it's really been a pleasure, and uh, and I'm excited for all that is to come. Thank you, thank you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to keep up with the latest industry news, visit us online at businessofhome.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter browse job postings, or join our BOH Insider membership community for access to exclusive online educational workshops, a free print subscription, a private Facebook group, and more. If you have a note for the podcast, drop us a line at podcast at businessofhome.com. This show was produced by Fred Nicolaus and edited by Albert Burge for Podfly. I'm Dennis Scully. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe and healthy and I'll see you next week.